Good morning, church. This morning we will be in Psalm 72, and I'd invite you to turn there with me now. Uh, For those of you who are here this morning that are visiting um, or who don't have a Bible, we have uh, Black Pew Bibles in front of you. You can find Psalm 72 on page 485 of those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home as a gift from our church to you. So I will read the text first in its entirety, then I'll pray, and then we'll begin. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, majestic in holiness and mighty in all your deeds, we approach you with reverence this morning, asking for grace and for help. Help us to see what your spirit has spoken in Psalm 72. Open our eyes to see the glory of your kingdom as it has been inaugurated by Jesus Christ, our King. Give us understanding where we need it, conviction where we need it, encouragement and comfort where we need it. Strengthen us all by your word and call us all to further repentance and faith as we hear your word concerning your son and his kingdom. It's in his name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. What is the kingdom of God and how is it relevant 
to you. All throughout Scripture, we see references to the kingdom of God, especially in the New Testament and in the mouth of Jesus himself. Here are a few examples. In Daniel 2.44, Daniel prophesies, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In Mark 1.15, Jesus begins his ministry preaching, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus begins his preaching by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus commands his disciples daily to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus commands his disciples in Matthew 6.33 to seek first, meaning above all things, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all throughout Acts, the apostles preach about the gospel of the kingdom, such as in Acts 8.12, where Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God. And in the very final verses of Acts, we see that Paul spends the rest of his days in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We also see Paul repeatedly saying in his epistles that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we see in the book of Revelation that when Christ returns, loud voices in heaven will be proclaiming, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So clearly, the kingdom of God is of central importance to the teaching of the scriptures. And yet, how often do you think about the kingdom of God? How would you define it? How would you describe it? We know that God from the very beginning of creation has always been king and sovereign and reigning over everything. So in what sense could the kingdom of God be described as something that is coming, as something that is not yet? God is not partially king over all things, so how can his kingdom ever be described as something in the future? Well, we'll see from our passage today that the kingdom of God to which the scriptures refer is not describing God's sovereign reign over everything, which has always existed, but it's actually describing God's holy reign through a perfectly righteous human king over a perfectly righteous people in a perfectly prosperous and holy place, which will be perfectly filled with his glory. To put it more simply, the kingdom of God is God's righteous reign through his righteous king over a righteous people and a holy place filled with his glory. We see this in Genesis. Adam was meant to be the first righteous king through whom God would rule over his creation, but Adam failed. However, God did not scrap his plan to establish his kingdom. This is the end for which all things exist, and it is the duty and privilege of every Christian to seek above all things the coming of this righteous kingdom, this righteous reign of Jesus Christ. There have been multitudes of nations, empires, kingdoms, civilizations, all throughout history, which have risen and which have fallen. Countless people 
have given their entire lives to seeking after the prosperity, the dominance, and the longevity of their respective kingdom, their nation, their empire. And even those who are not in formal public service still wish for the prosperity and success of their rulers. Because in the success of their rulers, they find the success of their nation. And in the success of their nation, they find their own welfare. We hear phrases all throughout history, like, long live the emperor, or God save the queen, God save the king, or God bless America. And yet, each and every kingdom, empire, and nation which has ever existed will be no more, without a trace, except one, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because with this kingdom is wrapped up the entirety of the future of the universe, of the entire earth. It is for the everlasting prosperity and global spread of this kingdom that every person on the planet should be seeking. Because in this kingdom and the future of this kingdom, everyone will find their future. According to Psalm 72 in particular, we should all be seeking the eternal prosperity and global spread of Jesus Christ's kingdom among all nations and in all places. Though this kingdom has been promised by God himself, God has ordained to bring it about through the faithful prayers and actions of his own people as they are empowered by the spirit of his son. And for those who do not seek this kingdom or desire to honor God's righteous son, there will only be left for them a place of separation from this kingdom, the place of eternal exile, the place of weeping, punishment, and shame, the place reserved for everything and everyone that is not righteous, the lake of fire. These weighty realities are the realities to which our minds and hearts should be driven as we read this psalm. And so the main point of the psalm and the main takeaway of this sermon will be, seek above all things the eternal prosperity and the global spread of Jesus Christ's righteous reign. Repeat that. Seek above all things the eternal prosperity and global spread of Christ's righteous reign. To understand this point, we'll consider four components of Psalm 72 that help us to understand its message. First, the righteous reign of the royal son. Secondly, the eternal prosperity of his reign. Thirdly, the global spread of his reign. And fourthly, the ultimate purpose of his reign. We'll then end by asking the question, what does it look like to seek after these things? What does it mean to seek after? the kingdom of God. I pray that God opens our hearts and our eyes to understand his word this morning, that we may all pursue the kingdom of Christ with great zeal and wait for the fullness of its coming with eager longing. So before we begin considering the various components of the psalm, let's first consider how the psalm is poetically structured and organized. It's a pretty long psalm, and it can be kind of confusing if you're reading straight through it, because it seems like it's going to different topics, it's addressing different things. But ultimately, there is a structure, there is an organization. It's not a random uh, assembly of blessings. So if you like to write in your Bible, um, you might be able to kind of divide the psalm 
into three segments that repeat themselves. A, B, C, A, B, C. So A is the righteous reign of the royal son. B is the eternal prosperity of his reign. And C is the global spread of his reign or the extension of it. So if you're going to write in your Bible, you can mark these sections in the psalm. Verses 1 through 4 of the psalm describe the royal son's righteous reign. Verses 5 through 7 describe the eternal prosperity of his reign. And verses 8 through 11 describe the global spread of his reign. And then these themes are repeated in the second half. Verses 12 through 14 deal again with the righteous reign of the son. Verses 15 through 17a with eternal prosperity. And verses 17b, and by b I mean the second sentence of verse 17. Verses 17b through 19 with global spread, global extension. So this is the structure of the psalm, but stop and think a moment about what a psalm actually is. Okay? A psalm is essentially a prayer or a poem that was typically sung as a Jewish, uh, during Jewish worship and is found in the biblical book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is essentially a prayer book. Much of it was written by King David, but it reflects essentially on what God has already spoken in the law and the prophets. So in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, the ancient Jews recognized three divisions, the law, the prophet, and the writings. The law, corresponding to the first five books in our Bible, set out the background content and purpose of God's covenant and his commandments to his people. The prophets describe God's covenantal relationship with his kingdom people as they rebel against him with promises for a new covenant and a future kingdom order led by a descendant of David. And the writings consist of poetry, wisdom, and history that help guide God's people in their prayers, practical living, and reflections on the law and the prophets. The book of Psalms is found in the section called the writings. And it's so dominant in the writings that sometimes the writings are simply called the Psalms, which is why Jesus in Luke 24, 44, describes the Old Testament simply as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So these poetic reflections in the Psalms are prayers which are inspired by God's spirit, and they give us God's own instruction in light of the rest of the scriptures regarding how we should pray, how we should lament, how we should rejoice, and how we should praise God in the hope of his future kingdom. I say all of this because we should see this psalm as praying to God along the lines of what he's already said. Our prayers should never be detached from what God has already said in Scripture. So when you read the psalms, you have to understand the rest of the Old Testament to understand what the psalms are actually saying. And the psalms exemplify this principle. Since these blessings are prayed about the royal son precisely because of David's confidence in what God had promised him concerning the royal son. Now, you may wonder, um, well, I'll say this. This psalm is actually, in many ways, was a template for God's people in the Old Testament for how they should pray for the kingdom of God to come, for how they should pray for the Messiah. It's therefore as much of a prayer as it is a prophecy about the Davidic Messiah and his kingdom. Now, you may wonder why I mentioned David as the author of this psalm when the superscript at the beginning of the psalm says that it is of Solomon. Well, look down with me at verse 20, the final verse of the psalm. It says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. 
Now, in order to make sense of this, we need to remember that the book of Psalms is actually a library or collection of Psalms divided into five books. And this Psalm, in particular, closes out the second book in the collection of Psalms. The first two books contain the vast majority of David's Psalms, which is why this sentence describes the prayers of David as ending here. The next three books of the Psalms are dominated by other authors like the sons of Korah or Asaph, even though there are a few Davidic uh, psalms sprinkled in. But the point is that this psalm was very likely written, or at least originated, with David. So if this was written by David, what do we make of the superscript that says, of Solomon? Well, there are various views among theologians. I agree with John Calvin that says that this psalm originated with David, given verse 20. And it's also the case that the inscription of Solomon could actually mean concerning Solomon or for Solomon. Since Solomon was David's son and therefore represented his heir who would one day inherit the promises that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7. So we can take this psalm to be David's prayer for Solomon but ultimately for his future descendant, the Messiah, who would usher in God's eternally prosperous and universal kingdom of righteousness and glory. It is a prophetic prayer of blessing, which both anticipates and prays for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would fruitfully reign over all the earth. All right, so let's move to consider first the righteous reign of the royal son in verses 1 through 4 and verses 12 through 14. Read with me starting in verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now move down to verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and, vi- oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now you'll notice that in verse 1, David prays that God would give his righteousness and justice to the royal son. But who is the royal son? Well, we've already been referring to him as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But let's confirm that with scripture by looking at the covenant promise that God gives to David about his descendant. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. Read with me, or listen, to, listen as I read God's words to King David in 1 Chronicles. God says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So I I, I refer to this passage. This passage is also, you can find it in 2 Samuel 7, but this is a little more abbreviated. But in this covenant, we see God's promise to raise up one of David's sons and establish his royal throne forever. We also see that David's son will be considered God's son. 
And in any case, this son is the royal son to which David is referring in verse 1 of the psalm. While Solomon could have been a candidate for this particular son, we know that he fell short. He wasn't established forever. Still, David praised this for Solomon since Solomon represented the royal son since he was David's first heir. And yet, hundreds of years later, a descendant of David would be born, who God would call his own son, who was established forever and declared to be the son of God in power when God raised him up from death and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So then, David is ultimately praying for God to give his righteousness and justice to Jesus Christ, the true messianic son and king of Israel. But what does this mean to give his righteousness and justice to the Messiah? What does it mean for God to give his righteousness and justice to a man? Well, according to Jesus' human nature, he received the anointing of the Spirit who perpetually empowered him to reign in perfect righteousness and justice. By the Spirit, God gives the Son the ability to reflect his own righteousness and justice. We see this in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah 11. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read the passage. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And so it's the Holy Spirit who anoints and empowers the human nature of Jesus to reign and judge as the Messiah in justice and righteousness. Okay, to see this even more clearly, we need to focus on three things. First, what does it mean for Christ to reign in righteousness and justice? Secondly, how has this righteous reign already come? And thirdly, how, has his righteous, how will his righteous reign come in the future? And we're going to do this throughout the sermon. We're going to see how the kingdom of God has come and see how it has yet to come, right? There's an already, not yet principle here. So first, what does it mean for Christ to reign in God's righteousness and justice? Well, let's look at the text and see, right? In verse 3, we see that righteous reign defends the cause of the poor. It gives deliverance to the needy. It crushes oppressors. In verses 12 through 14, we see that righteous reign delivers, pities, values and redeems the life of the weak and the needy and the poor from oppression and from violence. Now, these verses essentially summarize righteous reign as a reign which compassionately delivers the poor and needy. A righteous and just king is therefore a compassionate savior of the weak and the needy and the poor. Now, is this what you typically think of when you think of righteousness? What tends to come to your mind when you think of righteousness? Do you simply think of righteousness as a do-no-harm principle? That if I do no harm to others, I'm living a righteous life. Do you think mainly of sexual immorality? If I'm sexually pure, I'm living a righteous life. Well, Scripture goes way beyond this. It includes all these things, but it actually describes righteousness more positively as actively doing good to others in their need and defending others in their vulnerability. 
especially when this is a costly thing to do. Righteousness and justice are deeply intertwined in Scripture, so sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish between the two, righteousness and justice. But Scripture generally makes clear that righteousness is conformity to God's law, and justice is opposing and avenging violations of God's law. In that sense, justice is an extension of righteousness. Justice enforces righteousness. It protects and guards what is righteous. But what's the summary and fulfillment of the law? Love. Love for God, love for neighbor. Therefore, you can summarize righteousness and justice as conformity to God's standard of love in opposition to anything that twists or falls short of that standard. And God's standard of love is put on full display when one uses their strength and resources to defend and deliver those who are weak and in need. And so, as we see in the text, a righteous and just king will therefore love God by loving God's people and compassionately giving himself to deliver and defend them in their need and in their weakness. He opposes and crushes everything and everyone that dishonors God through oppression and violence and exploitation. This is therefore Christ's righteous reign, his commitment to uphold and exemplify righteousness by saving and delivering God's weak and needy people and crushing their oppressors. It is in short to uphold and establish righteousness by loving God and loving his people as their king. In what sense then has this righteous reign already come? Well, it was typified or shadowed in Solomon, actually. He was given great wisdom to rule justly over all of God's people in 1 Kings 3. However, he ultimately failed to justly rule, and he led the people into idolatry. He exploited them through overtaxation to fund his royal palace and support his luxurious living. But though Solomon failed to manifest God's righteousness, Jesus Christ never failed. 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the descendant of David according to his human nature, and he is the royal Son who was anointed with the fullness of God's Spirit to bring salvation, deliverance, and rescue to God's needy people as their messianic king. According to Peter in Acts 10.38, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. In abundant compassion and royal power, he cast out demons. He healed the sick. He answered the cry of the afflicted and the poor and the hungry. He fed thousands of the poor and needy at one time in Matthew 14. And yet, the greatest act of royal deliverance and compassion was displayed when the royal son voluntarily gave himself to the raging fire of God's infinite wrath against sin as he suffered and died in our place on Calvary. After dying, he was raised from death on the third day as a confirmation that he himself was innocent and that the weight of God's wrath and punishment for sin had been carried. Jesus Christ, the righteous king, seeing the weight of God's fiery wrath hanging over our heads, pulled the entire weight onto himself and was crushed so that all who turn to him can be forgiven and their sin debt canceled in full. 
so that all who call upon him for salvation, all who recognize their immeasurable need that they themselves are poor, may experience the richness of God's forgiveness and receive it through the sacrifice of the king who died in their place. We are all poor. We are all weak. We are all needy. But it is those of us who recognize it that can experience the salvation of the king who provides his riches to all who call on him. This king is the good and righteous shepherd who, according to John 10, 11, laid down his life for the sheep. And we, church, all of us who have repented of our sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, are his sheep. And if we are his sheep, then we have this forgiveness. But not only did he lay down his life to rescue us from the guilt of our sin. In dying, he freed us from the bondage of our sin, from the bondage and oppression of Satan, and from the bondage of death itself. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And this includes not only physical death, but spiritual death, spiritual darkness, and spiritual corruption. Spiritual corruption and death are actually manifested in bondage to sin. When a person's will is enslaved to sin, they are enslaved to sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, idolatry, ignorance of the true God, anger, hatred, wrath, Envy, corrupt speech, drunkenness, pride, selfishness, the list goes on and on. Bondage to sin is itself a punishment for sin. The more someone sins, the more they are enslaved. The more they are enslaved, the more they sin. And the more they sin, the more they are enslaved. However, when the royal son canceled the guilt of our sin on the cross, he also freed us from the punishments of sin, including enslavement and bondage to sin and in addition to all of this he triumphed over the power of satan and over all of his evil and demonic powers who enslave and oppress mankind because of their sin so jesus christ the promised seed of the woman in genesis 3:15 he has come he has crushed the head of the satanic serpent he has crushed and defeated the corrupt spiritual oppressor and ruler of the world by canceling the sin debt of all of God's people and rising from death as a guarantee of their own physical resurrection when he returns. This is how the righteous reign of Christ has already come. Christ's righteous act of deliverance through his death and resurrection have saved God's poor, needy, and weak people from the guilt and bondage of sin. Christ has purged his people from guilt, purged his people from the power of sin. And yet we know that though we have been freed from the power of sin, we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. Though we are not enslaved, and though we have the guarantee that we will rise from death and be freed from decaying bodies, this guarantee still points to something that's in the future. This is why Christ is still yet to return. Hear the words of Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so, though Christ has begun our salvation by defeating our sin, there is further glorious salvation that is still yet to come at his second coming. And so, we long for Christ's righteous reign, which is still yet to come, when Christ will return from heaven and rescue his eagerly waiting people from the presence of their sin, 
and from all physical weakness and decay and sickness and suffering and persecution and death, when he endows them with resurrection glory and seats them with him on thrones of power to reign over all things in a glorified new creation. We'll touch more on that, but the main point I want you to see is that Christ's reign, though it has been established at his resurrection, has not yet been fully manifested. It will be fully manifested when he returns in glory. So church, I urge and beg you to believe these things. Know that if you belong to Christ, the Messiah, you have been freed from the guilt and from the power and bondage of sin. And you most certainly will be freed from the presence of sin and death. Let this inform the way you think about yourself. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God's Messiah. And if you come before his throne of grace asking for help to kill your sin, know that he will be just to give you what he himself has paid for with his own blood. You are not bound anymore. You are free. It doesn't matter how sinful you feel. It doesn't matter how weak you feel, how new of a Christian you are. Christ shed his blood for those of us, of us who are the most weak, the most wayward, the most doubting, so that he might open up to us the storehouses of his grace to meet all of our needs, whatever they are, and to free us from all oppression of Satan himself. In Christ's compassion, he does not overlook you, but you come to him, and as you come to him, he looks at you and loves you. He shows you his compassion because he is a righteous king. So continue to come to him. Continue to fight the good fight of faith. He will be sure to lift you on his shoulders and deliver you from the muck and mire of the sin you so often find yourself in. Just continue to trust him, pray to him, fight your sin, continue to endure your suffering, continue to do his will, continue to do all these things in the strength he supplies you through his Holy Spirit because he is a righteous king He is a just king, and he delivers the needy when they call, and the poor, and he delivers those who have no helper. And so, with our hearts warm with affection for the righteous reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ, let's turn to consider the eternal prosperity, global spread, and ultimate purpose of his reign. I want to end afterward by looking at how we should seek after these things. So this was the most important point of the sermon, but we're going to look at now Given the fact that Christ reigns, how do we seek for his reign to be eternally prosperous, to be spread across the entire globe? And what's the point of it all? What's the purpose of Christ's reign? So let's consider the eternal prosperity of the Son in verses 5 through 7 and then verses 15 through 17. Read with me starting at verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moons throughout all generations May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Now look down at verses 15 through 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May may there be abundance of grain in the land. 
On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. In these verses, we see David's expectant prayer for the Messiah and the realm of his kingdom to be eternally prosperous. Now, there are two kinds of prosperity in these verses interwoven. There's a material prosperity and a spiritual prosperity. Look with me at verse 5. David prays, May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Now, who is the you in this verse? seems to break the pattern of the rest of the psalm, which says he, he, may he, may he. Well, this is a prayer, so we should identify the you as God, God himself, to whom David is praying. So the prayer is that the righteous and royal son would actually lead, lead the people to live in the fear of the Lord. Now, how is that prosperity? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the treasure of Zion. Now, before we think more about that, this, this should be an astounding statement to us. If you consider how stubborn and fickle Israel was throughout their history in the Old Testament, one generation might repent and serve God, and then the next generation falls away. So what kind of king could cause for the people to live in the fear of the Lord forever? Well, it would need to be the truly righteous king, Jesus Christ, the promised royal son. Isaiah 33.6 actually describes the fear of the Lord as the treasure of Zion. Proverbs repeatedly describes the fear of the Lord as essential to the wisdom, which is better than gold and more precious than jewels. Now, why is that the case? Well, in Scripture, there is an ironclad principle that God will enrich and bless all who fear him through obeying his law of love. David recounts this in Psalm 5.12 when he says, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. And so fearing and obeying God leads to being blessed by God. This principle is exemplified in the covenant blessings that God gives Israel in Deuteronomy 28. In, in that chapter, obedience to the law is rewarded with material blessing for Israel, such as fertility and abundant cattle and fruitful harvests. As Israel lived in harmony with the God of creation, the creation itself would yield its bounty, and they themselves would flourish. So this makes sense of the rest of the blessings of prosperity in Psalm 72, which seem to be more material. Now, don't worry if, if prosperity is a buzzword for you. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, but later on in the psalm, we see that the prosperity described involves the righteous people who fear God, flourishing like a watered field of grass and blossoming like the grass of a field in verse 17. We also see the land itself prospering with abundant grain and fruit in verses 16. In verse 16, the mountains are described as bearing prosperity and fruit, since the mountains were the most fruitful parts of the terrain in the land of Israel. And not only does David pray for the everlasting prosperity of the people in their land, but also for the king himself. Look at verse 15. David prays, Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. And so we see a prayer for the righteous king to be given long life and for wealth and blessing to be given to him continually from among the nations. A kingdom, um, even a kingdom like Sheba, a kingdom known for its great wealth. And so how has this eternally prosperous reign already come and how is it still yet to come? Now, we'll... 
you can already see it uh, shadowed in Solomon, if you know about Solomon, the son of David. God made him incredibly prosperous. He was the greatest and wealthiest king of the ancient Near East in the beginning of his reign. He built the temple of God, and he led all of Israel to keep the feasts of God and the law after he dedicated the temple. He and Israel prospered to the point that silver and gold were as common as rocks in Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 1.15. And 1 Kings 4.20 states that under Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. And yet, Solomon turns from the Lord and under his rule, Israel begins to pursue idolatry. There is a great split of the kingdom after Solomon's death and Judah perpetually sins until God ejects them from the land. And they experience all of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. Therefore, this prosperous reign must be looked for elsewhere. Where can we find this prosperous reign of the Messiah? Well, it must be seen in the reign of Jesus Christ, the true heir of David. In Jesus' ministry, power was given to him to bring great spiritual and material prosperity as he preached God's word and fed God's people with God's word and led many to follow him in repentance and faith. But he also healed all kinds of diseases. He turned water into wine. He multiplied five loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people at once. And yet, after performing all of these great miracles of blessing, he chose to become a curse. He who raised the dead gave himself to die. And he did this because his heart was committed not to prosperity, but to God the Father and to his people who needed his death to be freed from the power of sin and death. And as a result of his obedience and death, as a result of his righteous reign and salvation of his people, God raised him up and granted him the eternal blessing of life and glory at his right hand. And after this ascension, Christ pours out his spirit at Pentecost so that like verse 6 of Psalm 72 he might be like life-giving rain to his people, that they might flourish in the fear of the Lord and the fruit of the Spirit. Through his gospel and spirit, Christ's reign has resulted in the abundant prosperity and fruitfulness of his people as they are now free to bear the eternal fruit of righteousness that Paul describes in Philippians 1.11. And even now as he reigns, people from every tribe and tongue and nation right now are freely giving him tribute from all across the globe by sacrificially giving their wealth Sunday after Sunday for the advancement of the kingdom. The wealth of the nations right now is being invested in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Think of this. Mountains of wealth from every people across the world are freely given him, being given to him. And yet, is this the prosperity gospel? By no means. Because although the eternal prosperity of Christ's reign has already come in many ways, it is still yet to come in many ways. Right? God's people are still afflicted. God's people still get sick. God's people are never promised riches, wealth, and perpetual health in this life. Why? Because it is actually through these things, through enduring the sufferings of this life, that God's people are able to manifest spiritual prosperity, spiritual fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is through suffering that God's people have the wealth of their faith refined. 
Because suffering reveals what we really value and what we really love, suffering brings about fruitfulness in our lives if we know Christ. And when in the midst of our pain we continue following the Lord in holy love and obedience, we show ourselves to be heirs of his righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus himself had when he suffered for the sake of his Father, of pleasing his Father, and saving his people. We know that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So God has indeed promised everlasting life, health, wealth, and glory to all his people in a new, prosperous, and renovated heaven and earth. But this is not now. This is then. So we must wait for this material prosperity with patience, even as we seek the spiritual prosperity of Christ's church and kingdom in this life, in the here and now, as the gospel continues to bear fruit in our lives and around the world. And that brings us to thinking about the global spread, the ultimate purpose of Christ's reign. So we're thinking about the global spread of Christ's reign, the ultimate purpose of Christ's reign, and then we'll close. Look with me at verses 8 through 11 and verses 17 through 19. Verse 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Now look down at verses 17b through 19. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And so in these verses, David is praying for the righteous reign of the royal son to not be limited to the land of Israel, but to spread across the entire globe and extend to all nations and to all kingdoms. His desire is that the Messiah might truly be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. However, how can this global spread actually be accomplished, especially when many of the nations, many of the kings of the nations, are hostile to Israel and hostile to the God of Israel. Well, according to the text, David prays that the nations and kings submit to the royal son either willingly or unwillingly. But either way, they must submit. Look with me again at verses 9 through 11. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts, and may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Okay, so there are two examples portrayed in these verses. In one example, the enemies of the Messiah are said to lick the dust. This is figurative language depicting humiliating submission, which is clearly unwilling submission since they are his enemies. We also, though, we see kings bringing gifts to the royal son, falling down before him to serve him. While this could be unwilling, it's more likely a contrast to the unwilling licking of the dust by his enemies. Either way, we see two groups, those who are willing to submit to the son of their own accord or those who are forced to do so, his enemies. The global spread of the Messiah's dominion and reign does not lead to only, though, to global submission. It also leads to global blessing, right? Look down again at the latter half of verse 17. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. 
This verse refers to the Messiah as being a global source of blessing to all the nations of the earth. This clearly echoes the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 12.3, where God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, the global spread of the Messiah's kingdom is shadowed, and it's typified in some degree during Solomon's reign, as kings and queens throughout the ancient Near East rendered him tribute, and God gave him rest from all of his enemies at the start of his reign. However, when Solomon turned away from the Lord later on in life, the Lord actually started to raise up adversaries against him in 1 Kings 11, so that there was no peace in the land. And, there, and uh, these, these enemies harmed Israel for the rest of Solomon's life. We also never see his kingdom spreading to the ends of the earth, from the river to the, rivers, to the rest of the rivers of the earth. The, 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 the word river, it's capital R in your Bibles. It probably refers to the Euphrates River. But the point is that this, would, this was supposed to be a global spread, and we don't see that happening under any of the kings, not even David. So I hope at this point you've begun to see the pattern of how to interpret this psalm in light of Jesus Christ. When we look to Jesus, we see how the global spread of God's kingdom has already come in some ways, but not in others. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now picture the significance of this. Jesus went from being a poor, persecuted local preacher in Judea to the most powerful authority in the entire cosmos. Jesus Christ always had this power as the eternal Son of God. But at his ascension, he inherited this power as a human being so that for the first time ever at his resurrection and ascension, a human descendant of David has begun to reign over all powers and all kings and all authorities in heaven and on earth. And what are the results of this global and universal dominion that's been given to Christ? The result is that followers of Jesus are to make disciples from all nations, so that people in Palestine, and Africa, and Asia, and Europe, and Australia, and North America, and South America, and Antarctica, people from all continents, nations, languages, and tribes, are to become willing followers and worshipers of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what is happening in our very own day, 2,000 years later. The gospel is going forth on every continent, and the church is being built in all places. And yet, there remain many people who are still hostile to the reign of the royal son. These are his enemies. This includes everyone who has not dedicated the entirety of their life to serving him. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, those who are not with me are against me. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus deserves the full and total submission of our lives. He deserves the worship of every person on the planet. And here's the problem. The enemies of Christ have not yet submitted to him. They still rage against Christ at this very moment. And so God himself has sworn what will happen because of this. He has sworn in Philippians 2.10-11 that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I ask everyone who is here, who is listening to this sermon, which group are you in? Are you among those who will be forced to bow the knee when Christ comes in judgment and enforces universal submission to his righteous rule? Are you among those who, after being forced to submit to Christ's righteous rule, will be exiled from his kingdom in the lake of fire for willful treason against the king? Or are you among those who gladly and freely come to Jesus Christ before his return, those who hear the summons of Jesus right now from heaven as he echoes from heaven calling all the inhabitants of the earth to come to him, to make peace with him before he returns? before he returns in judgment, that they may be grafted into his people and live in eternal glory and blessing in his kingdom forever. That is exactly what Christ is calling all of us to do now. He has not yet returned, but he will. And this is the opportunity to make peace with the king. Wherever you find yourself, I beg you to make peace with this king now. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. God loves you. Christ loves you. And he calls you now to come to him so that you will not have to experience his unspeakable judgment when he returns. He will permanently banish evil from the entire earth, from the entire cosmos, from the entire globe, and his kingdom will have no place for unrighteousness. This kingdom will be filled to the brim with righteousness, and this kingdom will be filled to the brim with glory. And that brings us to the ultimate purpose of his reign, the glory of God. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's infinite excellence, goodness, and beauty. This glory is the treasure and hope of all God's people, to see God's glory as it shines from his face, to be clothed in God's glory in a perfect resurrected body that shines like the sun to see his glory as it fills the entire creation with beauty, goodness, and excellence. Look with me at the final verses of the psalm in verses 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This glorious prayer concludes the psalm as well as book two of the book of Psalms. And we see a transition for praying for the Messiah and his reign to fill the earth for God's gl- to God's glory filling the earth. We see the Messiah's global kingdom in the, be- in the uh, beginning of the psalm, but now we see God's global glory at the end of the psalm. This is because the Messiah's kingdom exists for the purpose of the whole earth being filled with God's glory. God's glory is displayed especially in God's righteousness. So when the Messiah establishes righteousness among God's people, he manifests God's glory, and anything that brings glory to God is worthy of eternal blessing and global spread. This is why verse 12 begins with the word for. For Christ's reign, Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteousness in those those verses, that is the basis and reason for the eternal blessing and the global spread that's described before and after. Christ's reign should be eternally prosperous and globally spread precisely because it is a righteous reign that brings glory to God. 
The glory of God is especially revealed in the righteousness and obedience of his people, in the righteousness of his image bearers who are meant to reflect his glory. The righteousness of human beings who live lives conform to God's righteous standard of love. Even now, Christ is glorifying the Father by building a church of people who live lives of love, mercy, and goodness. This is where the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God, the righteous reign of Christ, is not present in the mechanisms or government of nations, but in the recreated hearts and lives of his people in the church. This is where we see the glory of God in the kingdom of God, the church. And Christ is building his church. And one day, Jesus Christ will finish building his church, and he will create a society filled with perfectly loving individuals who perfectly display the glory of God, who perfectly display the love of God. And because God always advances and blesses everything that reflects his glory, God will eternally, eternally bless his people with all the fullness of his presence and all the fullness of his created gifts as he causes the entire earth and universe to become a paradise which will yield God's bountiful goodness for the enjoyment of his people forever. This will happen at Christ's return, and this is what Peter means in 2 Peter 3.13 when he describes a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So to conclude, we've reflected on the Messiah. Now that the Messiah, the royal son, has come, now that he has established his righteous and just reign by rescuing his people and his people from sin and death and ascended to God's right hand, now that he has poured out his spirit and is offering spiritual prosperity and life to people from all nations, and now that he has promised a glorious return where he will banish sin and death and usher in a new creation for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. In light of all this good news concerning God's kingdom, how do we seek it? What does it mean to seek this above all things? I ask this question because the psalm is structured as a prayer, right? It is instructing us to pray and desire these things. We also know that Jesus commands us to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above everything. Are we actually doing that? Do we wake up in the morning and say, my first goal is to seek the kingdom of God? Or do we even know what that means? Well, I would offer you four simple points to remember. This is what it means to to seek the kingdom. Submit, proclaim, pray, and rejoice. Submit, proclaim, pray, and rejoice. First, seek the kingdom by submitting to Christ's righteous reign, by believing his gospel and renouncing your sin. Submit to his gospel by trusting in him alone for your right standing before God, And then seek to submit wholeheartedly to his righteous law that you might be conformed to his image and share in his glory. Christ's righteous law does not simply call us to avoid the sins that are most prominent and controversial in our culture. Christ, the righteous king, does not simply call you to avoid or speak out against the evils of abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Indeed, we should in fact speak out against and oppose these things. Abortion, for instance, is a chief example of the most weak, needy, and vulnerable people in our society being torn apart and legally murdered all across our nation. How could we not oppose such an evil when we serve a righteous king who has rescued us in our need and our weakness and our vulnerability? And yet, Christ's law goes much further than opposing abortion. Christ calls you to not only love the unborn, 
but to love your enemies, to never seek vengeance, to bless those who curse you, to actively do good to those who hate you. Christ calls you to love the saints with earnest, compassionate, and sacrificial love. He calls you to be generous to those in need and to show pity, kindness, and hospitality to those who are poor and weak and vulnerable and afflicted. He commands that you guard your mouth against destructive speech, evil and untruthful speech. He commands that you live in heart-deep sexual purity and to avoid even looking at someone who's not your spouse with lust. He calls you to be a maker of peace. He calls you to be an avoider of slander, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. He calls you to be an imitator of his own love and to forgive others as you have been forgiven. This is Christ's righteous law, and it is conformity to this law that manifests the glory of God. This is how we seek after the eternal prosperity of Christ's reign, when we seek to bear the fruit of Christ's righteousness in our own lives by submitting to his law, and when we gently help our brothers and sisters do the same in the context of the local church. Secondly, proclaim. Proclaim Christ's kingdom to your neighbors and to all who have not heard and to all who do not know of who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. Seek the global spread of his kingdom by moving to foreign lands and proclaiming Christ's reign to the nations or by partnering financially with those who have already chosen to do, to do so. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to your Uber driver, to your unbelieving co-workers, to your unbelieving spouse, to your unbelieving children, to your unbelieving nieces and nephews, to your toddlers. As far as it depends on you, seek for everyone in your orbit of social influence to know full well about the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom of righteousness and justice. Thirdly, pray. Pray. Seek the kingdom by praying for the kingdom to come. Pray daily as our Lord instructed us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Pray for the eternal fruit of Christ's kingdom by praying for the spiritual fruitfulness of your own life. Pray for your own holiness and for the holiness of Christ's people. Pray for the fruitfulness of your evangelistic encounters and the evangelistic encounters of others. Pray that God's word would bear eternal fruit in the lives of his people as it is preached week in and week out in this pulpit and the pulpits of churches across the world. Pray that God would bless and prosper the pastoral internship of this church so that more leaders would be raised up to build Christ's global kingdom, Christ's global church. Pray for the advancement of Christ's kingdom among all nations. Earnestly pray that God, by his power, would affect a great exodus of souls to depart from the massive strongholds of unbelief throughout India and the Middle East and enter the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Pray for these things. And finally, rejoice. Seek the kingdom by rejoicing in God's promise to grant you everything that you are seeking after. Do not pray or seek after these things as if the Lord did not already promise them or that, as if the Lord has not, does not have the power to bring them about. Rejoice that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ will be exalted even as you seek his exaltation in the earth. Rejoice that you have been granted an eternal entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and rejoice that the kingdom of Christ will bring about the most precious reality in all of existence, the full, eternal, cosmic manifestation of God's infinite glory, majesty, goodness, 
and beauty. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name this morning, and we pray that your kingdom would come in all its fullness. We pray that your son would return in glory. We pray that we, your people, would zealously seek after the eternal prosperity and global spread of your son's kingdom. Give us grace, zeal, and joy to do just that. In Christ's name, amen.